This is Malia Warner, and welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. How is everybody doing? I hope you're having a fantastic summer. I have all of my crew here home for the summer. My son is back from South Africa. My daughter is home from college. And I have to say, it feels good to have everyone under the same roof at night. So that is what is special and good for me this summer. And I hope that you are having a good summer doing whatever it may be that you are up to this year. This is episode 29. And today is a continuation of reading Lies of the Magpie. Are you ready for today's chapter? It's kind of a roller coaster. Strap in, hold tight. This is Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 7. Another contraction pulls me by surprise. In painful reflex, I jerk the steering wheel and swerve into the oncoming lane of traffic. Thankfully, there is no oncoming traffic. I overcorrect getting back to my lane and end up riding on the rumble strip until I regain my composure and straighten out. Aaron would be all white knuckled stress if he were sitting in the passenger seat next to me. At first, after we moved to Arizona, Aaron and I would take turns driving on our long road trips back to visit family in Utah. But whenever I drove, Aaron sat rigid in the passenger seat, eyes fixed on the road, telling me when to change lanes or to start slowing down. Finally, I said, If you're not going to nap or read while we drive, then I will. Seriously, if he was going to drive the whole way, then he might as well just drive the whole way, which he was relieved to do. There is a saying that doctors make the worst patients. I think that drivers are the worst passengers. Aaron is a good driver and a terrible passenger. We've since settled into our traveling roles. He's the pilot, memorizing the maps and choosing the routes. I'm the stewardess, handing out snacks, juice boxes, and operating the onboard entertainment options. My driving aptitude is yet another reason Aaron didn't want me to come, and rightfully so. I'm a nervous driver and somewhat distracted. I would have graduated from high school with a perfect 4.0 except for one class. Driver's education. To this day, it still grates at me, my carefully guarded, flawless transcript, a beautiful sheet of clean white paper with a list of honors classes and columns of perfect A's, straight A's, sharp and tall, a proud brigade of army cadets on parade, clean lines, crisp uniforms, not a button out of place, until that one slacking A- shows up late and ruins the flawless presentation. Stuff like that drives me crazy. Based on the road practicum in driver's ed, I probably deserved a B or a C grade, but I had done all the possible extra credit classwork, which almost completely covered up for the fact that on my final test, I ran into two neighborhood garbage cans. I need a lot of extra credit to raise the grades on my mothering report card, which right now is looking bleak. I've gotten so many things wrong. I've made so many stupid mistakes. Another contraction tightens. 12 contractions in the last 30 minutes. Please help these contractions go away, I pray. I don't want to turn around and go back home. I can't face another failure. I made a stupid mistake when Tanner, our third baby, was born. I don't want to make the same mistake with this baby. Please, I plead to God, help these contractions to stop. When I think back about the year after Kate's birth, my memories come with the wonder of Dr. Jekyll and the taint of Mr. Hyde. 
I was genuinely happy. I wasn't faking happy. I wasn't happy on the surface and sad underneath. I was happy to the marrow of my bones happy. I experienced joy I didn't know possible. I had never before known how having children in my life could be so magical. Danny thrilled me. He was smart, inquisitive, playful, and interactive. He learned quickly, could recognize alphabet letters, and learned new sounds daily. He loved dogs and begged to watch Disney's 101 Dalmatians on VHS every day. We dressed him as a spotted Dalmatian for Halloween. Kate was the most beautiful baby, strawberry-shaped lips and rose-petal cheeks. She was so pink and petite that no one ever mistook her for being a boy. Though she was tiny, she was strong. She could lift and turn her head a few days after birth, and she learned to roll, scoot, and crawl quickly. When she discovered her laugh, it came out hearty and full from deep in the belly, which made her and the rest of us laugh harder. Every day she smiled and laughed and flapped her arms the moment Aaron came in the door from work, knowing he would play with and tickle her. In November, when Kate was six weeks old, nearly all of our family came from Utah for her baby blessing. A baby blessing is the Mormon version of a christening, but without the baptism and godparents. We moved the floral beast into the office and rolled out its bent sofa sleeper to create a guest room and bought a clearance couch and love seat from a furniture store going out of business to accommodate our guests. When we had moved to Arizona, I wondered if our parents would ever travel so far to see us. I needed never doubt the strong pull of grandchildren. Even my brother Kevin made the 10-hour drive, which was miraculous because his health seemed to be getting more fragile. Kevin was eight years older than me, two years older than Anise. He had turned 33 only days before Kate's birth. He had Down syndrome and a hole in his heart, a common complication of Down syndrome which doctors repair today, but not in 1966 when Kevin was born. His mind was sharp, but his holy heart struggled to pump enough oxygen to his extremities. After the long drive, his fingers and toes were dark purple. When he arrived at my apartment door, he enveloped me with the largeness of his hug and an exuberant, hello. Congratulations, he pronounced each syllable deliberately. Do you want to meet your niece? I asked. He sat on the blue love seat, situated his body, positioned his arms into the shape of a cradle, and smiled up at me, ready to receive the marvelous package. I balanced Kate in his arms, steadying her head on his crooked elbow. She is beautiful. It took three times to get his favorite word to come out the way he wanted. He leaned down and kissed her forehead. My favorite photo will be captured the following day, before church service, showing Kevin dressed in shoe and tie, hair neatly side-combed, calic gelled down and hairsprayed, looking so handsome. Sitting in his wheelchair with oxygen tubes in his nose, he again held up and positioned his arms, just so. I lay Kate and her yards of flowing white fabric and lace in his baby arm cradle. This time, he looked at her face and whispered directly to her, You are precious. When I was younger, I had mixed sentiments about Kevin. I loved him and fiercely defended him against kids who teased. 
but I was also jealous that sometimes he could fake sick to get out of chores, or I was annoyed when one of his breathing attacks meant we had to leave a bowling alley early or delay a family vacation. As I've grown older, my relationship with him has changed. It took me leaving home for college to understand the power of his constancy in my life. Not until I lived on my own did I realize that the feeling of proximity to heaven didn't come with any house or apartment. It came with Kevin. Kevin carried heaven in his heart. When I hugged him goodbye afternoon, I held him long and tight, wondering when or if I would see him again. I'd witnessed Kevin's health wane and rally so many times over the years, coming home from high school to an ambulance in our driveway, watching him carried out of church on a stretcher. Phone calls from my mom to my college dorm saying he was in the hospital with another heart issue. Should I come home? I'd asked. It's hard to say, she'd answer. She didn't know. We never knew. My siblings and I grew up understanding that more likely than not, we would say goodbye to our brother Kevin before old age. It was a day we anticipated but didn't want to face. Whenever I left him, I thought, would this hug be our last hug? It was impossible to say. In December, I pushed Danny and Kate in the stroller on a bright sunny morning to buy Christmas lights at Walgreens, trying to reconcile the oddness of setting up holiday decor with not a hint of snow or a biting chill in the air. We set up our Christmas tree, then went swimming, the four of us, together in the pool, one of my happiest places on earth. Friends gave Danny a red and blue Christmas suit and Kate a red velvet Christmas dress. We posed for a complimentary family portrait a gift from our apartment manager's office. Danny drove his trucks beneath the tree. Kate sat in her swing, content to watch the flickering lights. Having the four of us gathered around our Christmas tree, I thought I could never be more happy. But these occasions of extreme joy, even ecstasy, were tainted by intervals of darkness, worry, loneliness. Things festered in me, nagging worries that kept me awake. Why hadn't I accomplished more that day? Why did I always seem to be running late, falling behind? As hard as I tried to do everything right, it seemed that so many things kept going wrong. By his first birthday, Danny still didn't crawl up on his hands and knees like a baby should. He could get anywhere he wanted, rolling or using his army crawl. I read an article that stated the importance of crawling on hands and knees for a baby's brain development. Something about learning to move the right arm forward with the left leg, then switching to move the left arm forward with the right leg, wired important circuits for future brain function. Danny went from the army crawl straight to walking. Was he going to have brain development issues? Should I take him to a specialist? When he started walking, he walked with both arms high in the air, like a chimpanzee. It was funny to watch, but I lay awake at night worrying about it. After several months, I started tying his arms down around his waist with a dish towel to show him that he could still walk even without his hands high in the air for balance. Kate was so darling and also so chronically fussy. Eating gave her terrible stomach cramps and she projectile vomited nearly all the milk she took in. She was so tiny. Was she getting enough nutrition? Was I starving my baby? What in my milk bothered her? I quit eating spices, onions, cauliflower, broccoli, lettuce, and even gave up chocolate, but nothing helped. After months of struggle, I would finally give up nursing and switch her to formula, and she would rarely spit up after that. What was wrong with me? Why had my own milk been so bad for her? Once Christmas and the strangeness of winter without snow passed, I began to fall in love with the climate, which I came to refer to as 
room temperature weather. When you walked outside, the air was not one degree warmer or cooler than indoors. It was perfect. One February evening, I left Aaron watching the kids and ran to the grocery store. I didn't need heat nor air conditioning in the car. And when I stepped into the parking lot, the air was delicious. I didn't need a jacket, yet my legs weren't too hot in long jeans. I basked in that feeling of freedom walking through a parking lot alone without babies to strap into grocery carts. I scanned the clear blue sky amazed that I could not see one cloud. At the store entrance were planter pots brimming with blooming flowers, geraniums, and petunias in February. I had things to do, a grocery list and bunches of coupons, but for a moment, my heart felt content. I filled my cart in peace, no broken pickle jars, no interrupting questions about the babies. At checkout, I watched happily as the total bill decreased with each coupon scanned. Getting the shopping done tonight was a priority since it was double value coupon day. It was my version of gaming, like playing a reverse slot machine. I thanked the clerk, took my receipt, and pushed my loaded cart through the automatic doors into a different world. Where was I? The sky was dark as midnight, but it was six o'clock in the evening. The parking lot was unrecognizable. The palm trees were nearly horizontal, blown sideways by a powerful wind. Loose shopping carts rolled by. A plastic bag blew into my face. I screamed and swatted it away. I'd barely stepped out the door and already my face and arms were wet from windblown splatters of, was that rain? Thick sheets of water dumped as if from buckets in the sky. No one had warned me about Arizona thunderstorms. I'd never before heard the term monsoon. Up until that moment, I assumed it rarely rained in the desert, and if it did, that it would be a mild rain. I'd never experienced my world change from sun to storm so quickly, light to dark, bright to gloom, from perfect contentment to harrowing fear, from feeling all was right in the world to wondering if I would live through the storm. This was my induction to monsoon season. The next morning, the apartment playground was a third swimming pool. Water lapped over the bottom of the slide. The seats of the swings dangled inches above the water line. I'd never seen anything like it. I buckled Danny and Kate and drove to the library for story time. Around town, the road spillways were ponds of water. Arizona soil doesn't drain like Utah soil. It's harder for the clay ground to let go of the storm. February 14th fell on a Monday. We ran errands, then had a picnic and played at the city park. Danny and Kate took extra long naps. I turned the TV to the Oprah Winfrey Valentine's Day special, which featured husbands surprising their wives, who believed they were on the show to talk about other things, with Valentine gifts. One man knelt down before his astonished wife and presented her with a jewelry box. She squealed. Inside was a unique ring she had been wanting. Another husband revealed that immediately after the show, he was whisking her away for a surprise vacation. The babysitter, the tickets, the room reservations had all been arranged. Even her suitcase was packed. I boiled pasta and opened cans of soup to mix a casserole, thinking that if Aaron came home with surprise dinner plans, I could bake the casserole the next day. While I strained pasta, I tried to guess of all the ways that Aaron might think to surprise me. Had I seen any unexplained receipts in his pant pockets? He could easily go shopping during the day without my knowing. This was our third Valentine's Day as husband and wife. He hadn't really done anything last year or the year before, but those didn't really count. We were both students and working. 
This was our first traditional Valentine's Day. He was a working husband and I was his doting wife, taking care of his home and children and greeting him each evening with homemade dinners. This year, we were the living representation of the Hallmark card. Husband comes home from work with a surprise bouquet of flowers behind his back for his lovely wife who has one child playing at her feet and a baby on her hip as she cooks. That's what happens, right? That's how working husbands show their lives they love them, right? By bringing home flowers, chocolates, a bow-wrapped jewelry box. It said so on the TV and radio commercials, in the magazines I read in the grocery checkout line. Even Oprah said so. My heart was light, flying high on romantic fantasy. Aaron was late for dinner, probably picking up flowers, so I started feeding Danny. When Aaron walked through the front door, the only thing he was carrying was the mail. How was your day? he asked, dropping his bag and picking up Kate. I watched him touch her cheeks and put his finger in his mouth. I thought of all the people he'd shaken hands with that day, and that he'd probably just come from the store. All those germs! My mothering alarm went off. Wash your hands before you touch Kate, please, I said, astonished that he wouldn't think of that himself. He scowled, went to the bathroom. I could hear the water running. He came out and gave me the obligatory come-home kiss, but his tone had changed. I had irritated him. What's for dinner, he asked. So he wasn't taking me out to eat. Tuna noodle casserole, I answered. After putting the kids to bed, we had sex, a Valentine's expectation. Aaron rolled over and promptly fell asleep. I rolled to the edge of the bed, tears pouring down my cheeks. In May, I organized a spring recital. I'd added more piano students and started a song group. Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, I folded down our card table and chairs and taught rhythm, tone, and dance movements for five to eight-year-olds. Excellent preparation for private music lessons. I borrowed Anissa's sewing machine and sewed costumes for my dance group. The night of my recital, Aaron washed dishes, then changed into church clothes. You don't have to dress up for the recital, I said. The performers will dress up, but the audience will be casual. I'm making visits tonight, he answered. He wasn't coming to my recital? I was planning that you would hold Danny and watch Kate during the show. I can take them with me. It was a last-minute offer. I could tell he hadn't thought about me juggling the kids while announcing the performances. In the end, he canceled his appointments and stood in the back of the community center room, scooping up the dirt Danny had dug out of the decorative potted plants. He seemed bored, and I felt guilty for dragging him here, regretted bringing it up and wished I could go back in time and not mention it at all. The next day was Mother's Day. In church on Sundays, I worked in the primary, teaching the children ages 3 to 11. We had a huge congregation made up of mostly young, newly married couples and no retirees who attended their own congregations. We had 75 children in the primary and 120 kids under age 3. Sunday nights, I fell into bed exhausted. On that Mother's Day after the church meetings, the elders quorum presented all the women with a potted cactus. It was the only gift I got, unless you count the sex, which I didn't know was also a Mother's Day expectation. Aaron was asleep before I'd washed and re-put on my pajamas. I sunk down my back next to the bed and tried to keep my sobs silent. At Aspen College, I had been in the campus talent show. Aaron was mad he had to miss it because the senators were visiting the state legislature. He later told me that the first thing he'd done when he got home from the Capitol building was to track down a video recording, forward it to my part, and watch me walk across the stage and sit at the piano over and over and over again. 
Another time he showed up to watch me in the Miss Utah pageant, but the tickets were sold out. So he waited in the foyer of the auditorium for two hours, hoping he might catch a glimpse of me once the pageant ended. When we were engaged, he confessed spying on me while I posed for pictures in the foyer. It was worth the two-hour wait, he said. For weeks, I couldn't think of anything else except you in that red dress. I don't think he'd even noticed what dress I'd worn to church that day. I did the thing I wished Danny could do. I crawled on my hands and knees out of the bedroom and down the stairs where I could cry hard without waking husband or babies. Days earlier, we had taken the kids to the Bank One ballpark to watch the Arizona Diamondbacks play the Atlanta Braves. The afternoon had been beautifully sunny. The stadium buzzed with energy. Kate slept cuddled on my chest, her gentle heart beat a soothing, reassuring rhythm to my heart. Aaron fed popcorn to Danny between pointing out the players on the field and explaining baseball to him. I looked up to the sky each time Danny pointed out a bird or an airplane. My face full of sunshine, my heart full of baby, I felt bright and carefree. Life could not be more right. Downstairs, the night was dark. My tears fell on the carpet in sheets as if my eyes were dumping buckets. A whirl of questions blew around me and thundered in my head. Why doesn't Aaron love me anymore? Why doesn't he notice me or think about me? I thought teaching piano lessons would impress him. It's the only real thing I do outside of changing diapers. I've worked to get my students ready to perform for six months. They've progressed so much, but coming to my recital wasn't even a thought for him. He doesn't even feel enough love to buy me a Valentine's gift. Why wouldn't he give me anything for Mother's Day? Some jewelry? A pretty necklace? Why wouldn't he think of getting a babysitter and taking me out for dinner? No matter how hard I thought, I couldn't figure out why. Am I not a good mother? Do I not do enough to take care of the apartment and kids? He used to leap buildings to see me. Now it's like he doesn't even know I'm here. Like he doesn't remember I exist. The sadness blew around, whipping me in the face. A storm of darkness and gloom, a loneliness I'd never experienced before. It was my own unexpected monsoon. Life could not be more wrong. The next day, the murky floodwaters lingered. I asked Lya to tell me what Aaron was thinking. Why should he be impressed, Lya said. Nothing here is that impressive. I followed her gaze around the apartment. Clarence furniture, used piano, TV on a high school woodshop nightstand, card table, folding chairs, playpen, baby swing, scattered toys, books, burp rags, baby powder. I felt a constant layer of exhaustion, but looking around, I could see no evidence of my work. Today, I would redo all the same things I had done yesterday. Tomorrow, I would do them again. Every day when Aaron came home, the apartment looked exactly the same as it had that morning and the day before that, and the day before that. No matter how hard I tried, it looked like I did nothing all day long. You need to do more to be impressive, Lya said. I signed up to sell Pampered Chef. The months passed in this swing from happy to sad, from bursting with joy to feeling empty and unfulfilled, became my new normal. It was like two sides of the same coin. When we'd first looked at housing options in Surprise the year before, there had been only two builder developments. We had toured both sets of model homes and considered buying our first house, 
but decided to rent and let Aaron build up an established client list before committing to a mortgage. Now, one year later, there were dozens of model homes and new developments sprouting up faster than thistleweed on the family farm. All around the city of Surprise, bulldozers plowed down citrus orchards, flattening ground to make way for new rows of cookie-cutter houses. Danny loved to watch the big trucks at work. My heart hurt for each tree that was ripped out of the ground and left to die, its roots exposed to the sun. For recreation on weekends, we toured new model homes. I loved the fireplace next to the tub in the master bathroom in that one, Aaron would say. The space under the stairs would make a perfect play area for the kids, I pointed out. The lure of the model home was powerful. Perhaps designers release a feel-good gas with the air conditioning because walking through a model home always gave me a sort of floaty feeling. The immaculately landscaped yards and interconnecting sidewalks leading naturally from one yard into the other created a sense of a close-knit neighborhood and giant front yards. In reality, those models would eventually be sold and divided by 10-foot stucco fences. The colorful bushes of blooming bougainvillea Hibiscus and lantana would be replaced with rock beds and cactus. Still, walking through the models, I couldn't resist daydreaming of quaint evening barbecues, sipping lemonade and chatting with neighbors. Something about the meticulously decorated houses got me hallucinating about how picture-perfect my family would look inside the fancy picture frames sitting on the bookshelves and dressers of each spotless room. The dream of owning a home just like this, felt so good it was easy not to listen when the guide softly mentioned that some things shown here were not included. The plush carpet, not included. The two-toned accent paint, not included. The swimming pool, not included. The silver appliances, not included. The warm lighting, the drapes and blinds, not included. Furniture, not included. The fake bananas in the kitchen fruit bowl, not included. The picture-perfect family in the photo frames, not included. After a Saturday of touring model homes, we would return to our 900-square-foot apartment to eat lunch at our card table. We would chew our sandwiches quietly, neither of us completely aware of or able to verbalize why our life felt lacking. Then, by sheer chance, or perhaps luck or destiny, we found her. She was a house we could not refuse. The neighborhood was one of the two original new developments in Surprise. We had toured this builder's model homes the year before, but this house was even more amazing than any model we had ever seen. The owner was an interior decorator. After we moved in, I would see her on a morning news show demonstrating how to make the exact same window treatments that were in my family room. There are at least $40,000 worth of upgrades in this house, Aaron whispered to me as we stared in amazement at the backyard. For the same price as a basic new build, we would get a landscaped yard with a jacuzzi. I could imagine Danny and Kate playing outside, crawling on the grass and pushing their toy strollers, all within the safe enclosure of a fenced backyard. I would act quickly, the realtor advised. The owner is motivated to sell. Her mother lives two houses up the street, and I think their relationship has gotten dicey. We weren't ready. We didn't have a down payment. But this was our house. We made an offer that afternoon. 
There's only one thing that makes me really nervous about the house, I confessed to Aaron that evening as Danny walked around sucking on a popsicle. What's that? Aaron asked, opening his own popsicle. It's all white. White walls, white carpet, white curtains, white tile. We both looked at Danny. Red popsicle juice was dripping down his chin, belly, and into a puddle on the floor. The day she moved out of the White House, the owner, Lydia, asked me to stop by so she could teach me how to run the jacuzzi, the sprinklers, and how to dust the window treatments. I don't use Windex on these mirrors. Let me show you the best brands. She opened a cupboard in the laundry room showing a display of high-end cleaning products. What do you use to clean your bathroom sinks? She asked. Um, I thought of the cheap cleaners in my bathroom cupboard. I usually use Comet or Ajax. She shuddered. Never use abrasives on the bathrooms. The house was empty except for some artwork hanging on the walls. Do you want me to help you lift these out to your car? I asked. I'm leaving those for you. They matched so well with the rooms I couldn't bear to take them down. They're beautiful. I don't have any artwork. Lydia didn't look surprised. Would you like me to pay you for them? She shook her head. We both knew I couldn't afford what they'd cost. But you know, I would like the window treatments out of the two guest bedrooms. They match the bedspreads. Maybe we could make a trade. I agreed. Those were going to become Danny's and Kate's room, and the elegant floral drapes wouldn't have matched their second-hand crib sets anyway. I followed Lydia through each room, listening to her explain what paint she'd used and how she'd added trim to make the mirrors appear larger. Even empty of furniture, the house was beautiful, with its wallpaper, stenciling, and lavish window treatments. This house was more than I'd ever wanted, more than I'd ever hoped for, down to the carpeted, air-conditioned garage that Lydia had used as her workshop and would make the perfect teaching room for my song and dance classes. This house was perfect. All I had to do was keep it that way. We moved in on Friday, December 1st. At the new house, I was unpacking boxes, marveling at how well-behaved Danny and Kate were being, keeping themselves entertained while I unpacked the kitchen. We had celebrated Kate's first birthday in September and Danny's second birthday in October. I heard Danny singing, Who let the dogs out? Woof, 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 and looked up smiling, only to discover that they'd found the permanent markers we'd used to label the moving boxes and had colored across the fireplace, wall, and on the white carpet. We'd been here one hour and my flawless white house had its first black mark. Another stupid mistake. Why hadn't I put the markers high up out of their reach? On Saturday, the dishwasher flooded the kitchen. On Sunday, Anise brought Tyson and Ashley to see the house. Tyson and Danny played hide-and-seek in the family room curtains. They yanked on the drapes and pulled the curtain rod out of the wall, leaving gaping holes where the butterfly screws had been. Ashley was testing out the high-gloss tile, skating up and down the hallway in her socks. Lydia's high-end polishing products were amazing. Ashley skidded smack into the wall and put her knee through the sheetrock. Monday, I preheated the oven to bake my first meal in the new house. In just a few minutes, smoke was billowing out the oven doors. Grabbing hot pads, I opened the oven and pulled out what was on fire and ran it to the sink. After the water extinguished the flames, I could see the remains of the oven's owner's manual. Had Lydia lived here for 18 months and never once opened or turned on the oven? 
Well, one thing's for sure, Aaron said, we are definitely breaking in the house. Home ownership proved to be a much bigger responsibility than merely meeting the terms of the mortgage, which would be a challenge since our December paycheck was zero dollars. Aaron had earned commission, but we didn't realize that his office expenses, advertising costs, and other fees would be deducted before commission was paid. We had to buy trash bins, welcome mats, bathroom rug sets, and a lawnmower. My budgeting brain was stretched to the max working grocery coupon miracles. For Christmas, I sewed Kate an outfit from scraps of fabric left from my song group costumes and bought an outdated calendar for Danny. He wouldn't care about the dates and would love the pictures of the dogs. On Christmas Eve, I set out the presents and a $10 watch for Aaron and cried myself to sleep. January's paycheck showed that after office expenses and fees, we actually owed the company money. We were surprised by how many neighbors rang the doorbell to welcome us, until we caught on to the fact that for the past 18 months, the entire street had been consumed with curiosity about Lydia's white house. I've only been in here once, Angela from next door admitted. Lydia was kind of paranoid about her house getting dirty. I never saw anybody visit. Even her mom didn't come down here. Didn't she have like three armoires in the front room alone? Angela looked into my formal front living dining room, which hosted one piano and the blue couch set. What theme are you going to use to decorate when you finish moving in? She asked. I haven't decided yet, I said, even though we were completely finished moving in. Neighbors continued to invite themselves over for tours. I felt like Jackie Kennedy pointing out features of the real White House. This ivy stenciling was hand-painted by the previous owner. And in the office, you'll see a wonderful thematic wallpaper border highlighting golf courses from around the country. Follow me into the main bathroom. Here, the crown molding around the mirror was painted with a high-gloss heat-resistant paint to withstand the light from this row of specialty vanity lighting. I had made a photo album of pictures I had taken the first time I saw the house. When visitors came, I found myself emphasizing how the home looked prior to me moving in. This pot shelf was immaculately decorated with pottery from William Sonoma. As you can see, we haven't decided what to put there yet. In this blank corner, there used to be a Chinese dressing screen, and over against that blank wall was an Ethan Allen armoire topped with a trio of French vases. And here, where this yard sale blue plastic toddler bed now sits, was a Victorian queen poster bed with matching cherry wood dresser and nightstands. Without fail, every person who walked through the front door stopped on the square piece of tile, pausing before taking another step. <gasps> White carpet. Oh my goodness. I would get a runner. But I couldn't find a 12-foot runner, the distance from the front door to the kitchen tile. I tried laying down two six-foot runners, but that looked so trailer life. I know what theme you're using to decorate, Lya landed on a chair next to me and smoothed her hair. Your house says, white trash running a daycare out of the Ritz-Carlton. I spent my days chasing down Danny and Kate to wash their sticky hands before they touched the wallpaper. When they played outside, I wiped their feet before they walked on the carpet. I wanted to be able to love my new house, but I felt beneath it. I wasn't worthy of it. I shouldn't even be allowed to live here. I asked Laya what the neighbors thought about us moving in. She said, they think someone with more decorating talent should have moved here. I didn't deserve this house. Its immaculateness was wasted on me. I watched home makeover shows like Trading Spaces and fantasized that Nate Burgess would come turn my carpeted garage into a kid's playroom. 
In March, Danny got the flu and barfed up red Pedialyte. I used every cleaning solution suggested, but there remained a visible orange circle on the family room carpet. I moved a chair over the spot. Lydia lived here for 18 months and there was not a speck on the carpet, Laya observed. It looked better than new when she left. I looked around, noticing every handprint on the flat paint, the tears in the wallpaper, the stains, dents, and scuff marks. There was already traffic wear from the front door to the piano, even though I made my students take off their shoes. In April, I was crouched on a built-in pot shelf trying to arrange some framed paintings of geese I'd bought for $3 at a garage sale. I'd tried to balance on my stepladder and reach, but all morning my head had been dizzy. My chest felt like I'd swallowed two bricks. I was weak and just wanted to lie down, so I climbed all the way onto the pot shelf for stability. Below me, I heard the sound of shattering glass and Danny say, Uh-oh. He'd slid the stepladder into the pantry, so I stretched my foot down for the counter and dropped to the floor. Trying to reach a box of cereal, Danny had knocked a glass bottle of peaches off the shelf. In two strides and one sweeping motion, I lifted both Danny and Kate out of the middle of the pile of broken glass. I set them by the sink, pulled off their clothes, checked their feet and hair for glass pieces, and washed their hands. Then I lifted one under each arm and carted them down the hall. With broken glass in the house, the safest place for them to be was locked inside their own bedrooms. Kate cried with protest at being put in her crib. Danny knocked on his bedroom door and said, Ma! Ow! Mom! Mom! Back in the kitchen, I assessed the damage. When the glass jar hit the floor, the peach syrup had splattered on all four sides of the pantry. It dripped from bags of bread, oozed down bags of chips, and puddled in sticky masses on the shelves, the mop handle, the vacuum. I would be spending my entire morning on my hands and knees scrubbing. I carried the garbage from under the sink and picked up the largest chunks of glass. My hands started shaking, my head spinning. I stood up to get a wet rag and had to catch myself on the pantry doorframe. My heart, heavy as a boulder, was pounding against the wall of my chest. I could not be in this kitchen anymore. I could not clean up this pantry. I used to be able to speak confidently in front of debate judges without revealing a trembling pinky finger. I used to rattle off the names of 27 bones of the human hand from memory. I could argue the diplomatic failure of the U.S. involvement in Guatemala. But today, I could not clean up broken glass. I could not spend one more hour of my life sponging up a sticky mess. Shaking and dizzy, I walked along the wall, leaving the pantry light on, broken glass scattered, and peach syrup dripping. I made it to my bedroom, but I didn't know what to do. I couldn't be here, either. From the other room, I could hear Kate's wailing fade into a constant sobbing. I opened the door to my linen closet and began pulling out extra sheets, towels, and spare toilet paper until the bottom shelf was empty. Then I crawled inside and pulled the bottom of the door closed. I wanted the back of the closet to give way and open to a giant pit in space where I could disappear into nothingness. I didn't want to die. I believed in life after death, and I couldn't bear to face the redeemed souls of people who had actually endured real challenges in life, like my great-great-grandmother who gave birth on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of February, or the children who had died in Ethiopia during the drought. What about all the soldiers of the world wars, or Gandhi, Joan of Arc? 
I didn't want to die and face these brave souls knowing that a broken glass had driven me to my closet. What I wanted was to cease to exist. I cowered in the darkness of my closet and hated myself with a loathing unfit for the devil himself. Folded in the fetal position, I trembled and shook, my body rejecting the poison of shame and guilt that I was injecting into it in large doses. It took a while for the shaking to slow down enough that I could start to cry. Laya stood outside the door talking down to me. You have to get out of this closet right now. You are humiliating yourself. Aaron is going to come home for lunch. And what will you say? How will you explain a grown woman crawling into a closet and bawling? Part of me wanted Aaron to come home. I wanted him to see me like this. I needed him to know that I wasn't okay. I needed him to help me because I didn't know how to help myself. You need Aaron to rescue you from a broken mason jar? Laya asked incredulously. Honestly, Malia, how hard can it be? I didn't know how much time had passed when the shaking finally stopped and I pushed the door open. I felt weak but purged. Danny and Kate were sound asleep. It was too early for their naps, which meant they wouldn't sleep through piano lessons that afternoon. In the kitchen, I swept up the broken glass and scrubbed the dried sticky juice off every surface. Then, since I still had time before my first piano student arrived, I prepared dinner. Aaron arrived home that evening to the smell of baking casserole. Hi, he kissed me on the head. How was your day? My day was fine, I answered. How was yours? At this moment, as I drive to Tucson, I am no longer a homeowner. We sold our White House just a few weeks ago. In fact, when I get home from this conference, I need to remember to mail our first rent check to the new owner. I feel a sense of relief that I'm no longer completely responsible for the house. I've tried so hard to fill it, to decorate it, to keep it pristine. I held pampered chef parties so I could win free utensils and furnish the kitchen. I scoured yard sales and discount furniture stores to furnish it. I tidied every day in case producers from the Oprah show knocked on my door. This is a show about stay-at-home moms and what they do all day. Can we take a tour of your life? They'd say. I had to be prepared. Invisible judges might drop by. There could be a surprise quiz. But day after day passed and nobody stopped by until the one day when I didn't tidy up. The days when the house looked neat and organized, the rare times when I felt on top of my game, nobody knocked on my door. Nobody saw my work. Most of the time, all I wanted was for one thing that I had done to be noticed and appreciated. Honestly, it's another one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Tucson this weekend. Staying home would not have been restful. I can never relax at home and read a book or watch a movie. If I ever have downtime in my day, I have to be cleaning the house. Driving hours to Tucson is far more relaxing than being home. The house was my white, flawless report card, and I'd already racked up so many minuses. I was a servant to that house, to its whiteness, to its perfection. It didn't serve me. I served it. I was caretaker of the pot shelves. I stood guard between the white paint and my sticky children. I was a keeper of the carpets. I was its keeper. I had become a house keeper. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to Lies of the Magpie. Have a great week. Stay well, my friends.